Hi everyone, before we get started today, I just want to quickly apologize. I know at the end of last week's episode, I promised that we would be having a guest on for an interview. However, that guest, Mr. Isaac Shapiro, had to reschedule. It turned out that the original timing just couldn't work. And that's fine, he'll be on next week. Instead, this week we're going to be doing a different episode, and next week Mr. Shapiro will be joining us. I'm really excited, his life is incredibly fascinating, and I hope you find it enjoyable too. For now, though, let's get on with this week's episode. Before we do, though, a quick word from our sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by DreamCloud Mattresses. DreamCloud is an affordable, luxury hybrid mattress that combines the best of latex, memory foam, tufting, and coil technology to provide the best sleep that money can buy, and an exciting combination of comfort and support. And what's particularly great about it is that with a 365-day free trial, that's right, a full year to try it out, you can take your time deciding whether you like it or not. For listeners of the show, DreamCloud is offering 200 bucks off your first order. Head on over to isaacmeyer.net slash dreamcloud, that's one word, dreamcloud, and click the link for the discount. And then once your new bed arrives, have a lie down, enjoy the comfort, and crank up the podcasts. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 246, There and Back Again. This week I want to tell the story of one of the most important non-Japanese people in Japanese history who most folks had never heard of. He was not born in Japan and lived there only a short time, but for a century and a half, his account of what the country was like shaped perceptions of what the land of the rising sun was around the world. His name was Engelbert Kempfer, and I'm sure I got that wrong, so first a hearty Entschuldigung to all of my German-speaking listeners. He was from Westphalia, one of the principalities of the Holy Roman Empire. He was born in 1651 and grew up to what we might call a middle-class upbringing. He was the son of a preacher and grew up with a solid education, culminating in a trip to university, where he would study medicine and natural science. Indeed, Kempfer had something of a wanderer's spirit. In the span of eight years, he spent some time at universities in Hamlin, Lüneburg, Hamburg, Lübeck, Danzig, modern Gdansk, Krakow, and Königsberg, modern Kaliningrad. The fact that he had a university education, and in particular that he had the education he did, would prove invaluable to the later developments of his life. Doctors were, of course, always in high demand, and a background in natural science gave young Engelbert a highly developed eye for detail, as well as a curiosity about the world around him and how it worked. Eventually, Kempfer made his way to Uppsala in the burgeoning kingdom of Sweden. At the time, Sweden was one of Europe's rising powers, and the nation's universities drew people from across the continent. Kempfer hoped to continue his studies at Uppsala University, but while he was there, he drew the attention of some Swedish nobles affiliated with the university. They were impressed by this bright young man and arranged a role for him in an embassy being sent by the king of Sweden to Persia, which, under the Safavid dynasty, 
was becoming a wealthy and powerful player in the power politics of Europe and the Middle East. Kempfer's travels in Persia are a bit beyond our scope here, which is unfortunate because they're really very interesting. Kempfer, you see, was an avid reader of a genre called the travelogue, stories written by Europeans who visited other cultures and then came back to tell their tales, many of which were heavily exaggerated by a desire to play to European stereotypes about distant lands full of half-men, cannibals, dragons, other such things. Engelbert Kempfer was decidedly not in on that kind of thing. He had with him one of the more influential travelogues on Persia, that of Adam Olschlager, written about half a century earlier, and derided its depiction of the city of Calm, which he described as about as similar to the real thing as a cow is to a windmill. Eventually, Kempfer and company made their way by 1684 to the Safavid capital of Isfahan, about 200 miles south of modern Tehran which the Safavid Shahs had worked to make into one of the greatest cities in the world. Isfahan was a large, wealthy, and economically diverse city. In addition to a large Iranian population, it was home to a good many Armenians, Dagestani, Circassians, and Georgians, among many others. Kempfer would spend his time in Isfahan trying to get all of this down. For 20 months, he worked with the Swedish embassy, visiting the court of the Shah, the great markets of the city, the religious sites, anything he could get to, and taking careful notes on the customs of the people of the city, of the architecture, of the customs of the Shah's court, of religious practices, anything he could jot down. After the Swedish embassy fulfilled its mission and began planning its return to Europe, Engelbert Kempfer made a fateful choice. He decided not to go back, but instead to explore Asia further. Of course, he was decidedly middle class, not an aristocrat, which meant to fund this, he would need a job. Fortunately, there was one place that was hiring plenty of people in Asia. The, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher this, Veringede Ostindische Kompanie, Dutch for East India Company, was by 1685, 83 years old. Today, we usually abbreviate it by its Dutch initials, VOC, to differentiate it from the identically named East India Company, or EIC, formed in England. The VOC had grown out of a somewhat radical concept. Rather than the series of ad hoc trading companies that would organize to support a specific trading voyage and then liquidate after that voyage ended, Dutch voyages to the Far East were to be managed by a single, enduring company with a state-granted monopoly on those trips. By the 1680s, the VOC was enormously successful. It employed a massive private army of 10,000 troops, some 150 ships, and had a half million employees. Of course, much of its wealth was built on brutality and violence toward native peoples, particularly on the island of Java, where the VOC had its main eastern bastion in the city of Batavia, modern Jakarta. The wealth of the VOC was built in large part on slavery, disease, warfare, and exploitation on a scale the world had rarely, if ever, seen before. By the 1680s, the VOC was also not what it had been. Its bastion on the island of Taiwan had been lost to the mixed Japanese-Chinese warlord Kokushinga, and its forces had been defeated militarily by the Chinese, the Vietnamese, and the Cambodians. One of its most profitable trades, its monopoly on the closed-off realm of Japan, was becoming less and less profitable as the shoguns in distant Edo 
passed laws restricting the outflow of Japanese silver, one of the main things the Dutch wanted from Japan, out of the home islands. However, the VOC was still an economic force and would be such for another hundred years or so. It was always in need of smart young men to employ in its service, especially smart young doctors who could take care of its half-million employees. So Engelbert Kempfer promptly found his job. Kempfer would spend the next five years on a variety of assignments across Asia. He spent time in Arabia as well as India, and in 1690 he made his way to Batavia. There he was given a new assignment, as chief surgeon to the Dutch outpost in the trading city of Nagasaki, the only Japanese port open to the Dutch. Now I want to back up a little bit here and talk a bit about what Kempfer would have known about this land he was going to. The earliest account of Japan to appear in European records described it as a land so strange and foreign it was practically demonic. Marco Polo's account is typical. He describes Japan, or as he calls it, Sipangu, as a land so flush with gold that the roofs of temples are lined with it, as is the floor of the ruler's palace. However, he also describes the Japanese as inveterate idolaters, who worship statues with animal parts, or many-handed deities, likely a reference to the Buddhist Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara slash Kanon. I want to take a moment here to quote directly from Marco Polo's account. Quote, and when any Christian asks them, the Japanese, why they make their idols in so many different guises and not all alike, they reply that just so their forefathers were wont to have them made, and just so they will leave them to their children, and these to the after generations. And so they will be handed down forever. And you must understand that the deeds ascribed to these idols are such a parcel of devilries as it is best not to tell. But I must tell you one thing still concerning that island that if the natives take prisoner an enemy who cannot pay ransom, he who hath the prisoner summons all his friends and relations, and they put the prisoner to death, and then they cook him and eat him, and they say there is no meat in the world so good. Unquote. Polo's account is, of course, tinged a bit by the fact that he got it from Mongol-dominated China, and as you may recall, the Mongols had something of a beef with Japan for the whole defeating two of their armies in battle thing, Indeed, the observant among you likely detected some slight anti-Japanese bias in that quote. But still, this is the first thing Europeans would have heard about this country. Later accounts from the Portuguese and the Spanish, and later the English and the Dutch, dropped the whole cannibalism thing, though they were still not what you might call flattering. Here, for example, is St. Francis Xavier's impression of the Japanese from a letter he wrote in 1552. Quote, the Japanese are very ambitious of honors and distinctions, and think themselves superior to all other nations in military glory and valor. They prize and honor all that has to do with war and other such things, and there is nothing of which they are so proud as of weapons adorned with gold and silver. They always wear swords and daggers both in and out of the house, and when they go to sleep they hang them at the bed's head. In short, they value arms more than any people I've ever seen. They are excellent archers, and usually fight on foot, though there is no lack of horses in the country. They are very polite to each other, but not to foreigners, whom they utterly despise." Unquote. Of course, this is more of a description of the samurai class specifically than Japanese people more generally, 
Both St. Francis Xavier and his fellow missionaries would also recount the kindness and the fervency of Japanese converts to Christianity. Still, the fate of those converts and the missionaries who refused to leave them behind was also important for a prospective traveler to Japan to remember. After all, when the Tokugawa shoguns had decided Westerners were more dangerous than useful, they'd expelled the Portuguese and the Spanish, killed their converts, and brutally executed any Westerner or any Christian who refused to either leave or recant their faith, in a somewhat ironic twist, by crucifying them. The English and the Dutch had been allowed to stay because of their avowedly commercial, which is to say non-religious, interest in Japan, but even so, the intensity of restrictions placed on them while staying in Japan had eventually convinced the English to just pull out completely. By the 1690s, only the Dutch mission was left, and it faced some very severe operating restrictions. For example, Dutch captains approaching Nagasaki were instructed to take all copies of the Bible aboard ship and lock them in a chest in the captain's cabin. The ship would be searched on arrival for any form of proselytizing material or for open displays of religiosity. Only two Dutch ships were allowed to arrive each year to bring in replacement crew for the Dutch trading post and trade goods as well. Once those ships arrived in Nagasaki, the Dutch were confined to the island of Dejima, an artificial island connected by a single bridge to Nagasaki proper. The island itself was about 13,000 square meters, or about 140,000 square feet. The whole Dutch mission was comprised of 10 to 15 officers plus their servants. I've had a hard time figuring hard numbers based off of that, but figure these are members of the emerging middle class that's probably no more than two servants per person, so around 40 to 45 Dutchmen at the high end. The Dutch were officially banned from leaving the island without special permission, and only certain members of the local Japanese population were allowed to come see them. Among those allowed to interact with the Dutch while they were on the island were a hereditary class of caretakers and translators who managed, for lack of a better word, the lives of Dejima's peculiar residents. There was also an officially licensed group of merchants who bought goods from the Dutch and distributed them around the country, and a special group of young ladies of negotiable affection from Maruyama, the licensed quarter of Nagasaki. Since Nagasaki was home not only to Dejima and the Dutch, but also to a special Chinatown as well, the ladies of Maruyama were allowed to leave the licensed quarter to go service the foreigners. Something pretty unusual, something pretty unusual for residents of the Edo period's licensed prostitute quarters. The services provided by Maruyama were in constant demand in Dejima. About 270 distinct visits by Maruyama women to Dejima took place in 1722, and in 1737, that number reached 620. And those visits were not cheap. A Dutch merchant could expect to pay about 60 mumme, or pieces of silver, for such a visit, compared to about five for a visit to the Chinese quarter. Of course, the prohibition on allowing the Dutch outside of Dejima, well definitely on the books, was not always strictly observed as much as the shogun's enforcers may have preferred. It's pretty clear that ladies from Maruyama did on occasion escort Dutchmen out of Dejima and into Nagasaki proper on at least a few occasions. These women also sometimes served as smugglers for the Dutch, 
bringing goods into the city to circumvent Tokugawa government monopolies on the western trade. One rule that was much harder to circumvent was the ban on permanent residence for any woman on Dejima. Neither Japanese women, nor Westerners, nor Chinese, nor anyone else was allowed to reside full-time on Dejima itself. The only exceptions had been made in the wake of the Dutch loss of Taiwan, when the governor of Nagasaki, who was appointed by the shogun, allowed Dutch refugees onto the island, including some women, who were given temporary residence until they could be picked up and returned to Batavia. This rule was designed to prevent any kind of more permanent community taking root from the seed of the decidedly temporary Dutch one. After all, children who grew up on Dejima could threaten the shogunate monopoly on the Dutch. Genuinely bicultural children could have provided the Dutch a means for circumventing Tokugawa control over trade and information by acting as intermediaries for their Dutch fathers. For that same reason, if one of the prostitutes who serviced the Dutch became pregnant and decided to keep the kid, that kid was raised in Nagasaki as a Japanese person, not on Dejima by the Dutch. This was the life into which Engelbert Kempfer willingly immersed himself for two years, from 1690 to 1692. In doing this, he was already among a fairly elite company of Westerners allowed long-term residence in Japan. However, even beyond this distinction, there was another thing that made him unique. Just like in Persia, he wrote things down. Kempfer took careful notes of his time in Japan, and when he couldn't figure out something for himself, he asked about it, either by asking one of his fellow Dutchmen or his Japanese interpreters. In particular, he developed a close friendship with Imamura Genemon, one of the hereditary Dutch-language interpreters. Imamura provided Kempfer with maps, documents, and stories to enrich his notes. It's highly unlikely that Kempfer's work could have been done as thoroughly as it had been without Imamura's help. In this, Kempfer was also lucky to be living in the time that he was. In the 1690s, Japan was approaching the peak of the Edo period. Its economy was booming, it was militarily secure, and the prestige of the Tokugawa family had never been higher. While the Japanese didn't exactly welcome Westerners, they didn't fear them either, and didn't see the harm in sharing information about the country with this strange, inquisitive foreigner. When Kempfer did go home, he went home with a huge number of maps and sketches provided by the Japanese. Contrast this with what would happen to another German, Philip Franz von Siebold, who took up residence in Dejima about a century and a half later. He was expelled from Japan for life in 1829 because he'd acquired a map of the country, leading to worries that he was a spy operating as the vanguard for Western invasion. Kempfer, on the other hand, was given free reign to satisfy his curiosity. He took notes on everything, a few of which I'm going to share with you here. In the realm of religion, he described the two competing Japanese religions, Shinto and Buddhism, and described Shinto priests as acting not like priests, but like, quote, secular and married persons, though in the meantime they assume to themselves, by reason of their honorable employment, a far higher degree of holiness and respect than they think the common bulk of persons deserve. Their way of life, as well as their common dress at home and abroad, is no different in any way from that of other inhabitants, excepting only that they do not shave their heads, but let their hairs grow and tie them together behind their head. 
When they go to the temple, they dress in an ecclesiastical habit, with various headdresses, according to everyone's office and quality, end quote. In his two trips to Edo, he described his time journeying along the Tokaido Road, the main road along the Pacific coast of Honshu leading to Edo. Quote, Everywhere upon the Tokaido, between the towns and villas, there is a straight row of firs planted on each side of the road, which by their shade make the journey both pleasant and convenient. The ground is kept clean and neat, convenient ditches and outlets are contrived to carry the rainwater off to low fields, and strong dikes are cast up to keep off that which comes down from higher places. This makes the road at all times good and pleasant, unless it has recently rained and the ground is slimy. The neighboring villages must jointly keep the roads in repair and take care that they are swept and cleaned every day." Kempfer also took careful notes on everything down to the design of the boats he saw in harbors along his path, speculating by their design as to their use as well as the wood used to construct them. He also took careful note of the economic condition of the country itself. For its towns and cities, he had nothing but praise. Quote, Most of the towns are very populous and well-built. The streets are generally regularly spaced, running straight forward and crossing one another at right angles, as if they had been laid out at one time, and according to a general ground plot. The towns are not surrounded with walls and ditches. The two chief gates, where people go in and out, are no better than the ordinary gates which stand at the end of every street, and are shut at night. Sometimes there is a sort of wall built contiguous to the main gate on each side, but this is merely for ornament's sake." Unquote. Of the countryside, however, he had this to say, quote, "...the houses of country people and of husbandmen are so small and poor. In the back part of the house the floor is somewhat raised above the level of the street, and it is there they place the hearth. The rest is covered with neat mats." Behind the street door hangs a row of coarse ropes made of straw, not to hinder people from coming in or going out, but to serve instead as a lattice window, to prevent those who are outside from looking in and observing what passes indoors. As to household goods, they have but few. Many children and great poverty is generally all they are possessed of, and yet with some small provision of rice, plants, and roots, they live content and happy." Unquote. He praised the system of inns and post houses he saw along the road. Quote, Here are inns enough and tolerable good ones all along the road. The best are those in villages where they are post houses. At these, even princes and princely retinues may be conveniently lodged, treated suitably to their rank, and provided with all necessities. They are, like other well built houses, only one story high, or if there are two stories, the second is low and good for little else but storage. The inns are not broad in front like other houses, but considerably deep, with a small pleasure garden behind, enclosed with a neat white wall. The front has only a lattice window, which is kept open all day long, as are the folding screens and movable partitions which divide the several apartments, unless there is some man of quality with his retinue at the time lodged there. Kempfer even described the dejected social status of the Burakumin, quote, but no profession is as much despised by the Japanese as those of the tanners, whose business it is to skin dead cattle, to dress and tan leather for shoes, slippers, and the like. These people are obliged to do the office of public executioners, to put prisoners to the wreck, to torture them, in other words, and to execute them, whether they are to be beheaded, crucified, or put to any other death whatsoever. 
They live by themselves in a separate village out of town not far from the place of execution. End quote. Kempfer also described the pleasures of Maruyama, though not whether he himself indulged, and the history of the sex trade as he understood it. Quote, it is unquestionably true that there is hardly a public inn upon the great island Nippon that cannot also be called a body house, and if there be too many customers that resort to one place, the neighboring innkeepers will friendly and willingly lend their own wenches on condition that the money they get shall be faithfully paid them. Nor is it a new custom come up but lately in this country. On the contrary, it is of very old date, and took its rise many hundred years ago, in the times of that brave first general and secular monarch Yoritomo, who, apprehensive lest his soldiers weary of his long and tedious expeditions, and desirous to return home to their wives and children should desert his army, thought it more advisable to indulge them in this particular manner. Like many other stories Kempfer relates, this explanation for the rise of prostitution is more urban legend than anything else. Minamoto no Yoritomo decidedly did not invent prostitution as a means of preventing desertion. Similarly, the subsequent story Kempfer tells that Chinese regularly come to Japan expressly for the purpose of prostitution because it was illegal in Qing Dynasty China is also a fiction. That is, a long way to go for something that is available on the black market. Of course, my favorite Kempfer story, which I just have to tell, is his audience with the Shogun in 1691, which I've quoted at some length here before, but simply have to produce again. Quote, Soon after we came in, and after the usual obeisances seated ourselves in the place assigned to us, the Lord of Bingo welcomed us in the Emperor's, which is to say, the Shogun's name and then desired us to sit upright, to take off our cloaks, to tell him our names and ages, to stand up, to walk, to turn about, to dance, to sing songs, to compliment one another, to be angry, to invite one another to dinner, to converse with one another, to discourse in a familiar way, like father and son, to show how friends or man and wife take leave of one another, to play with children, to carry them about our arms, and to do many other things of a like nature." Moreover, we were asked many questions serious and comical, and then we were commanded to read, to dance, separately and jointly. We were then further commanded to put on our hats, to walk about the room discoursing with one another, to take off our perukes, a gentleman's wig. They made us jump, dance, play gambles, and walk together, and upon that, they asked the ambassador how old we guessed Lord Bingo to be. He answered fifty, I forty-five, which made them laugh. They then made us kiss one another like man and wife, which the ladies particularly showed by their laughter to be well pleased with. After this, they begged another song of me and were satisfied with two, which the company seemed to like very well. After this farce was over, we were ordered to take off our cloaks, to come near the screen one by one, and to take our leave in the same manner we would take it of a foreign prince or king of Europe, having been exercised in this manner for four hours and a half, unquote. Kempfer certainly seems to have taken being shown off in this way rather well, or at least better than I can imagine myself handling it. The whole thing was pretty clearly an attempt to demonstrate the power of the Shogun by ordering these weird foreigners about, and you can imagine having it go on for four hours. I got annoyed the few times I just had a little kid point at me. Still, despite his experience in the Shogun's palace, Kempfer's experience in Japan seems to have been extremely positive. 
His account is more descriptive than anything else, and he rarely injects his opinion into things. He seems instead to have generally wanted to relate the truth of his own experience and observations to the greatest degree he could. However, passages like this one seem to suggest pretty clearly how he felt about Japan. Quote, I must own that in the visits we made or received on our journey, we found the civility of the Japanese to be greater than could possibly be expected from the most civilized nation. The behavior of the Japanese from the meanest countrymen up to the greatest prince or lord is such that the whole empire might be called a school of civility and good manners. They have so much sense and innate curiosity that if they were not denied free and open conversation and correspondence with foreigners, they would receive them with the utmost kindness and pleasure." Unquote. All in all, the picture one gets of Japan from Kempfer's work is very different from that described by Marco Polo or the Jesuits. Sure, they were a bit on edge around foreigners, but on the whole, they were very welcoming. In 1692, Kempfer was rotated out of Dejima. He returned to Europe by way of South Africa before arriving in Holland and eventually getting his doctorate, finally after all these years, at Leiden University. He would go on to serve as the personal doctor of a member of the German nobility before dying in 1716. During his lifetime, Kempfer never published his notes, likely because they were in German and, at the time, most published work was still done in Latin, and he was unable to face the prospect of translating them himself. However, in the 1720s, his papers went up for auction and were bought by Sir Hans Sloane, an Irish baronet of Scottish extraction, who would go on to bequeath the papers to the British Museum. Kempfer's papers were translated and published in English for the first time in 1727. The French edition would follow in 1729, and in the 1750s, the original German version would be published. Kempfer's account of life in Japan, so thorough it had to be published in two volumes, became the account of the Land of the Rising Sun. Anyone who was curious what life was like in this closed country read Kempfer's papers, and his story became famous. Perhaps most interestingly, in 1782, and 92 years after Kempfer arrived on a Dutch ship in Nagasaki's harbor, another Dutch ship arrived in Nagasaki. This one carrying on its list of books for sale to the Japanese a Dutch copy of Kempfer's account. The book was bought up by the Lord of Hirado, the domain Nagasaki would have been a part of had it not been managed directly by the Shogun, Matsura Seizan, who then published that account in Dutch. Kempfer's description of Japan would be translated in part into Japanese in the early 1800s. A complete translation would be made for the first time in the 1840s, though that manuscript was lost during the Meiji Restoration. Before the arrival of Commodore Perry in Japan, Kempfer's account of life in the country was one of three modern accounts available for the curious. Alongside the writings of Isaac Titzing, who headed the Dutch mission to Japan during the 1780s, and the writings of Franz Philip von Siebold, the guy who got kicked out for having the map. Kempfer's was the first to be published, and in many ways the most thorough. Titzing's was focused very heavily on history and politics, and less on daily life, though he does bear the distinction of being the first Westerner to translate what we would call Japanese primary sources into a non-East Asian language. Siebold, meanwhile, was interested more in cataloging Japan's natural beauty than anything else. 
Kempfer's account, by contrast, was thorough, wide-ranging, and the first one written by a non-Catholic that was widely available in Europe, which was an important distinction to make in a Europe where religious division was, if not as violent as it had been, still very much present. His writings also dealt more explicitly than the previous ones with Japanese history and politics, and with Japanese religion. Jesuit writings on the topic had by default condemned Japan's traditional religions as demonic, and had little of interest to say about Japanese politics beyond its impact on proselytization. Kempfer's account of Japan, and particularly of Shinto and Buddhist religious establishments living in harmony together, was of interest in a time where religious toleration was very much an issue still in Europe. Remember, the brutal Thirty Years' War, a religious conflict that had devastated Central Europe, had ended only three years before Kempfer was born. Kempfer also presented a nuanced look at Tokugawa policy, defending the harsh laws of the shogun as necessary to bind Japan's fractious lords under a single peaceful rule of law. He even defended the Japanese decision to close itself off to Western influence as a wise policy in light of the potential destabilization of Japan by Spanish and Portuguese missionaries, as they'd done to so many other countries. Kempfer's writings on Japanese politics injected Japan into the political discourse of the time. No less an authority than Voltaire, the great French philosopher, was so impressed by what Kempfer had described that he wrote in Japan, quote, the laws of nature had been transformed expressly into civil laws, unquote, and that, quote, of all the countries in Asia, Japan was not the least deserving of the philosopher's attention, unquote. Not all his contemporaries were so kind. Montesquieu described Japan as a despotic state, and Francois Diderot, compiler of the first encyclopedia, heaped scorn on Japan's religions, even as he too expressed admiration for Japanese religious tolerance, and noted that the Japanese would have willingly tolerated Christianity too, had Christians not attempted to subvert the government and shown intolerance to Japan's existing religions. Of course, the conversation of these three philosophers and all other European philosophers was colored far more by their own preoccupations with European goings-on than by anything to do with Japan itself, but it still shows the extent to which Kempfer had vaulted Japan into the European consciousness. And that is what I think is really important about the story of Engelbert Kempfer. He was the first person to try, however imperfectly, to just relate what he saw in Japan, based on information he had gathered with the help of Japanese friends, and with the goal not of writing a polemic or supporting a religious mission, but simply telling people about this place where he had lived. As a result, Japan captured the Western imagination. In many ways, for good or ill, it's held that imagination forever since. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week, when this time, really, I promise, we will have our interview with Isaac Shapiro.